Let, we're going to jump in. Today, if, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever wondered what it would take to be able to experience all that God has for you? Have you ever thought, what would it take? What would it take for me to be able to experience everything, experience all that God has for me? Just have something in your arsenal of spiritual disciplines that would really make that happen. Something that you could go to. I know we're a society of give me the formula, give me the thing, and we know that our spiritual life isn't made up of just formulas and things like that, but there are certain things that the Bible tells us that can really be, in a sense, go-to things when it comes to being able to experience all that God has for us. Well, this morning, as we continue on with our studying the gospel of Matthew. We're going to actually, we haven't skipped any verses, but we're actually going to go a couple, we're jumping a couple decades now. That's what Matthew is doing where we're going now. And we're going to leap ahead and we're going to be introduced to a new character on the scene. We're going to be looking today at John the Baptist and really the crucial role that John the Baptist played in God's plan of salvation. And really, we're going to look at today what this story teaches us concerning the key element in being able to experience that all that God has for us, okay? This isn't going to be the answer, but this is going to be a key element here. And just this little thing, you know, a lot of times when I preach, there's a, you know, I give you three points or four, and you remember these three things, not going to happen today. There is just going to be a lot of information. I have a direction I'm going with all of this. But there's just going to be a lot of stuff. So what I, here's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. I want to encourage you when it, to just grab at least, just grab one truth, okay? If you can just grab one truth out of this story, because there's a lot, there's three sermons really in this, we're going to look at the entire chapter, chapter three of Matthew. But I just want you to, I just want to encourage you, instead of giving you some bullet points necessarily, I want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit, what's one truth that I can take away from this sermon. I think that would be great. So let's start. We're going to jump right in. Matthew chapter 3. Let's read the first six verses, okay? And this, this is where we are introduced to John and his message, okay? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here we're introduced to John. And, we're, and we're, he's out there and he's in the wilderness and he's preaching. Now before we look at what he was preaching about, I want to take a second to look at John the person. Let's look at him for a second here. It's interesting if you notice that Matthew seems to go into incredible detail to describe John. I mean, he goes as far as talking about his clothing, what he's wearing, and what he ate. Kind of seems like overkill. I mean, he didn't, no one introduces Peter like that. Hey, here's Peter, and he's wearing hirachi sandals and hummus. He's eating hummus on a stick. You know, you don't, none of, you, we don't get any of that. But for some reason, we're given all this detail about John. Well, see, what we're doing here is if you've been listening to these last few, this last month here, what's happening, Matthew is doing, he's going here, once again, he's appealing to his mainly Jewish audience. 
And what he's doing, he's weaving into this narrative not only Old Testament prophecy concerning John, but he's also weaving in there this prophetic imagery to describe him. And the reason he do this is because this would be very familiar to his people. The people would go, ah, yes, okay, this is making sense to me. It was very cultural for them to understand. So that's what Matthew's doing. Once again, we're talking about the importance of being able to communicate the gospel in a way that people around us completely understand. You see, verse 3 here, their words originally spoken are actually talking about Isaiah, the prophet, that how God, Isaiah would come to, that he was saying how God would come and deliver his people. This was one of Isaiah's prophecies, that he will deliver his people out of exile. So just like, just like he announced this, just like Isaiah announced that God was going to come, so too now John the Baptist is the one who is announcing that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come and rescue mankind from their sins. So they're starting to see the connection here. He's also invoking some imagery for his reader by describing his lifestyle, okay? Elijah, Elijah in the Old Testament it described, is described very similar this way, that he was a man of the wilderness. He wore clothing of animals, garment of hair, a belt around his waist. So once again, the people are starting to go, okay, we're with you. I understand what you're talking about. I'm putting two and two together here, okay? Later in, the, later in this gospel, in Matthew, Matthew actually records how Jesus states that John is literally, in every way, the modern-day Elijah. This is big stuff. The point of this whole thing, the point of why he goes into all this is that he's saying that John the Baptist is not just this warm-up act to Jesus. I think that's what a lot of us do. We go, oh, yeah, John the Baptist, he told us that Jesus was coming. That was his role. Done. That's not it at all. He's trying to help us see the importance, that role that he plays in this Jewish prophetic tradition. And there he's, that John is playing a crucial role in introducing this rule and this reign that Jesus is going to be the king, this kingdom of heaven. It's coming. And Matthew's original readers would have noticed this. They would have noticed that, okay, this is a big deal because he's equating it with Elijah. Holy smokes. So boom, their, their ears are perking up. Matthew's readers are. So let's take a quick look now at his message. What was John the Baptist saying? Well, all we get is this one little line, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the command for all people everywhere to repent is one of really the central messages of the New Testament. In a couple weeks, we're going to actually see, in two weeks actually, we're going to see how Jesus actually, when he starts his ministry, this is exactly what he says. After his temptation in the wilderness, which we're going to look at next week, he actually says, that's one of the first things he said, people need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this call, more so, we even see this call for repentance is also, also throughout the book of Acts. You know the book of Acts. The book of Acts is all about the new church. It was exploding and, and birthing and all these people were coming to Christ. Once again, that was the central message. We got it from Peter. Remember the day of Pentecost, the very first day when the Holy Spirit fell on everybody? And everybody thought, oh, these people are all drunk. And Peter goes, whoa, 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 wait a second. They're not. And he explains it and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
We see it with Paul later down, later down the road. Remember, he's walking through Athens and he sees all these statues of all these things and all these gods and, oh, the unknown God. And all they said that, you know, in Athens, they were known for men just standing around talking about all the things they knew. You know, sounds like our politicians. But they just, you know, here's what we know. Here's what we do. And so he, he stands up and says, hey, I notice you guys are, you know, religious people. And then he gets to the point and he says it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that's a pretty negative connotation for us a lot. We hear, repent, the, nation, the kingdom of God. What do we think? Some guy, you know, on a street corner, right? We just go, don't talk like that. Don't talk like that. But this message would have meant a lot back then. So what does it mean to repent? What does it actually mean? What is he saying? Well, the, literally, to, the literal means of, the meaning of this word is to change one's mind, well, to repent means to change your mind. It means to undergo a change in your frame of thinking, the frame of mind and your feelings and the way that you were going so that you can now go in ways that honor God. True repentance, really, it's, it's more than just being sorry. Okay, it's more than just saying, oh, I blew it. I'm sorry for my sins. But it's actually changing our mind in how we view our sin. Okay, we actually see it differently. It also includes changing our mind on how we view ourselves. It includes changing our mind on how we view God. That's what repentance means. I was thinking this way. Oh, I need to think this way. It's like, it's like you see them on these videos sometimes where someone gets on the road or on the freeway and they get on the wrong, and they're going the wrong way. You know, it's like, picture yourself again on. You're not even thinking about it. You're doing something. You're singing, you know, you're, you know, Shania Twain or whatever he's singing, you know, he's singing on, and all of a sudden you get on, you're on the freeway and you go, oh my gosh, I got on the off ramp. What would you do? You'd stop, you'd get off and start doing what? Go back and go the other direction. That's a picture of repenting. That's what repenting really is. Now, John Piper, I like him, he, defend, he defines repentance like this. He says, repentance is turning away from any and all reliance upon what I am by birth or what I have done by my own effort and turning to the absolutely free mercy of God for the hope of salvation. Now, this is, what John, this is why John the Baptist was baptizing people. He, came, he wasn't doing it. He wasn't doing it for their salvation. I mean, Jesus hadn't died on the cross. He hadn't even come, he hadn't even showed himself yet. But what he's doing here, his baptism, really, it functioned as a call to the people of Israel to return, to change and repent from going, okay, this is how we're gonna go. We haven't heard from God in 400 years. Nothing's happening. We're just gonna do our own thing. We're just gonna go through the motions. Whatever the religious leaders tell us what to do, we'll just outwardly do that. No, John's baptism was to help people to realize, okay, I need to turn to something. He was preparing people to turn to what was coming. And that was Jesus initiating God's kingdom, his kingdom here on earth and his reign. Now, John also gives us some motivation. He gives us the motivation for repentance. Now, why should I do this? We think, oh, I gotta be forgiven. But really, why should we repent? And he says it right there. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's about to happen. It's right here. Watch out, it's gonna, it's just, you know, like your mom would say, if it was a snake, it would have bit you or something. It, it's right here. It is right there. 
If you remember a few months ago, we talked about what the kingdom of heaven is. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is God's rule and his reign in the hearts and lives of those who submit to his authority. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of heaven, it's about forgiveness of sin. And it's about this new life that's found in Christ. It's about having a relationship with the God of the universe where he sees you and he sees me as righteous, not because of anything that we've done, but because of the atoning work of his son on the cross. The kingdom of heaven is about this abundant life where we live our lives out of fullness of Christ's power and out of his goodness and out of his grace. And you know what else it's about? It's about purpose. The kingdom of heaven is about having purpose because we belong to what we looked at. Remember in the first Peter chapter two, we looked at this as we are called a what? We are a royal what? Priesthood. As followers of Jesus, we're a royal priesthood. And you know what the role of the priest was? The role of the priest was to proclaim the excellencies of God, to proclaim how great was, to petition for the people before God. That's, we have a purpose. That's what he's talking about here. This, and it, we, it really changes how we conduct ourselves. We as priests, when we look at a priest in the world, when you think about a priest, you think, oh, guy, that guy is probably doing the right thing. Okay? Well, maybe not. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. But really, when we think about being a priest for God, we want to have our minds in the right place, our actions all in the right place for him. That's what living the kingdom, that's what the purpose of living in God's kingdom is about. Now, John is saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Be ready. Don't miss it. You want to be a part of this thing. You don't want to let this go by, okay? I'm sure if he could have made a banner back then, banners are us or whatever, he would have made one because that's how important it is. That's his message, okay? We're going to dive a little deeper into that. In this next section, verses 7 through 10, he really gives us a stern warning here. He gives a stern warning. Actually, he gives it to the people that don't repent. And he, gives, and he also gives us some proof of what true repentance really looks like, okay? So he's going to give us a warning about, for those that don't repent, and he's going to give us some true, a proof of what true repentance looks like. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. He says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who, he knew how to make friends, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to take these, make from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, who are these clowns? Who are these guys that he is absolutely going after? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the two main groups that were in the Sanhedrin back then. Remember, we talked about these guys, the supreme kind of the supreme council of the Jewish people. They were like the supreme court, and they had ultimate authority over everything religious and civil and criminal. That's who they were. Reality is, these two groups didn't get along very well all the time. 
They had different, way different beliefs about certain things, differing views about scripture, about the afterlife, about the spirit world. So oftentimes, these two parties in their government didn't agree. Let me think. Where else? <laughs> Some things never change, do they? But that's what was happening. Now, in seeing them, we know, see how he, that he arrives. He is, it's unlikely that these guys wanted to come and baptize because we can see how John addresses them. If these guys were coming to repent and be baptized, I don't think he would have said, you brood of vipers. I mean, I was trying to think about, we were going to talk about it in staffing. What would be a modern day I can't, I can't even think of calling someone a brood of vipers because the brood of calling these guys a brood of viper is really calling them evil because back then they viewed a viper as an evil creature that was just full of venom. So he's painting this picture not only for them to see of themselves but for everybody else to see. And it really perfectly describes the Pharisees and the Sadducees and who they were. They were selfish and deceptive in their motives and how they went about the religious laws. And John warns them of the fact that their lack of repentance has left them wide open to a word and to a phrase that they didn't want to hear and we don't like to hear today either. He says they were leaving themselves open to God's wrath. But God's a God of love and forgiveness. Yes, he is but he's also a God of wrath. And talking about this, isn't, is this not a popular thing to talk about? And I really believe it's one of the things that we have done ourselves a disservice in the church by not talking about God's wrath because it's so important. I think we haven't talked to it because probably it brings to mind for pe people a picture of this angry God losing his temper and lashing out at people that are disobeying, ready to just strike them dead and hit them over the head or whatever. That's kind of the picture that maybe some of us have, but definitely I bet I'm sure a lot of people in the world have. But the truth is God's wrath must be seen in relation to his maintaining and his defending his attributes of love and of holiness, as well as his righteousness and his justice. It has to be seen that way. If you take it away from that, it does look like, I'm just gonna nail you. But you have to see it in terms of his love and his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. Romans 1.18 says this, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is a whole, man, this could be a sermon series. It really could on wrath. We could, we could talk so much about God's wrath and really learn a lot about it. And, and just a side note about um, what I was reading a lot in different commentaries this thing and other people they said about God's wrath is when you talk about God's wrath, we look at it from a Western point of view. You look at it from a point of view where, where you've got countries where people are coming in and murdering and cutting up and doing all this stuff. For them, the whole idea of justice and punishment and deservedly so makes a whole lot of sense, more so a lot of times than it does for us. But I probably open a can of worms by even going there. But like I said, I would encourage you to study this whole idea of God's wrath on your, on, on your own. You see, God's wrath, what it really is, it's his deep down gut, if he had one, gut-wrenching and gut reaction to all that dishonors and rebels against him. 
That's what it is. It's everything that, it's his reaction to it. It's like, it's like this visceral reaction that he has to everything that dishonors him and rebels against him. J.I. Packer in his book, great book um, called Knowing God said this. He said, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious. Capricious, that word basically means something that is a sudden, undependable change of, you know, of their move. They can all just kind of fly off the handle. He says, it's never that capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Now, in speaking of this wrath, um, of God's wrath, it isn't meant to scare people, okay? That's not what John's trying to do. I'm trying to scare you into, I'm gonna scare you into repenting. What he's doing here, it's helping them to know and it helps us to know that God's wrath is intended to make people aware of their wickedness. That's the whole idea. It's not, meant, it's not meant to say God is this mean God. It's to say, no, God is the God of love and justice. So you're going to want to see how you, where your life plays in that. How do you fit in all that? It's all about wanting the world to repent. He's not telling these guys, listen, you guys, you brood of vipers. You guys are evil. You're going to face God's wrath, and I can't wait till you do. No way, knowing John the Baptist, he was, he was willing to do whatever it took to get anybody to repent, even if it meant letting them know, watch out, you're in danger of an amazingly loving and just God imputing his wrath on you. Don't let that happen. That's where he's coming from, not to be mean and vindictive. I read this quote this week from Tim Keller. He said that fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. That's where he's coming from. That's the whole idea here. Besides, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief makes us, well, I'm sorry, worldly grief produces death. It's just guilt and shame, and I feel horrible. So there's a big difference there. The reality is that the more that we are aware of God's wrath, the more that we are aware of his justice and of his grace and of his mercy, it's actually God's love in action against sin. Let me say that again. Wrath is actually God's love and perfection in action against sin. Okay, now John goes on, goes on in verse eight to illustrate what repentance practically looks like, okay? I want, he's saying repent, so what does that look like? He says, in verse eight, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, John is equating authentic repentance with a changed life. Remember, repentance means turning turning around and acting in a new way that honors God. So with a change of mind comes a change of behavior. And what does John call this? He calls it fruit. It's fruit. Fruit comes from a changed mind. It's not something that we put, do ourselves. It's from repenting. It's from changing the way we originally were. Later in chapter seven, Jesus says this. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, 
but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Wow, say that 10 times fast. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. What he's saying here is that truly repentant people, people who have heard and understand the gospel, they bear fruit. They love God. They love others. And they show this love by how they live their lives. People can talk all they want about being a believer. You can talk all you want about loving Jesus and I'm a a follower of Jesus. Show me your fruit. Not because I want to judge you, but I just want to make, it it just makes sense. If someone says they're a follower of Jesus, it needs to come out in the fruit and that's what he's saying. It's not not perfection, but a life that is striving to be more and more like Jesus and repentance will be a big, big part of that. So he tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they can't rely on the fact that they're the descendants of Abraham. You can't rely on that anymore. The father, you know, Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. You can't rely on him to save you from God's wrath. It's not going to happen. This is something they took for granted. What does anything, what does anything matter? We're related to Abraham, the father of Israel. We're, we're in. When the Messiah comes and sets us his kingdom, we're the top dogs because we're Abraham's children. John's saying, Mm-mm. don't go there. Do not go there. Apostle Paul even helps us out with this. In Galatians chapter three, he says this, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What, what, he, what does he say? He's saying here is that, you guys, your pedigree isn't enough to save you. It's just not going to work. The only thing that's going to save you is true repentance, which will in turn impact how you think and how you act. That's the answer. doesn't say how you know, they responded. I'm sure they did not like hearing that. The reality is that no matter how good we think we are, the proof that we're truly repentant people is in the fruit that we bear. You're really gonna be, if we're really repentant, it's gonna come out in the fruit. What this means for us as followers of Jesus is that we must live lives of continual Repentance. I mean, lest you think that I was just going to talk about people that aren't believers. This applies to us, too. We must live lives of continual repentance. Not for salvation. Not so we keep getting saved. That's already happened. So that, but it's so that we can fully experience the kingdom of heaven. You see, this continual state of repentance, it helps us to see our sin for what it truly is, more than something that we're just sorry for, but that there's something that we actually mourn over, 
something that we actually, we deplore it, we despise it. Is there something in your life, is there a habit, is there a sin that you are drawn to? Let me tell you this, because I've experienced it. I'm just, I'm speaking out of experience here and off notes. Uh, is, that, is that if you want to have, find victory in that, if you want to find victory over that sin, one of the best ways that that is going to happen is as you begin to deplore that sin. You hate it, okay? It's something you can't, not that you're, I'm just so sorry, I'm so bummed because of the circumstances that it, you know, I'm paying the price for it over here and I'm so, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so well, sorry because I made a mistake. Look what I had to pay for. No, it's saying, I hate this. I hate it. I cannot, I just deplore this, this envy that I have towards another person. I, it's, it, it breaks my heart. It destroys me inside. If you've got a sin that you're going back to constantly, the enemy is just going meow, meow, hitting you with, pray to God to ask you to despise it, to hate it with a righteous hatred, with the thing because you know it's what's destroying your beautiful relationship with Jesus. Repentance also helps us to stop chasing after God's favor through our own righteous works because we know that there's nothing that we can do. Bless you. There you know there's nothing that you can, we can do to earn God's favor. As we repent to him, the more and more we realize, okay, it's all about just giving myself to you. Okay, it helps, continual repentance helps us to be in a place of dependence on God's grace and trusting him to shape us into him is his image and to use us as he decides. When we repent to him, you're, you're giving yourself completely up. You're way more open to how he wants to use you, way more. And how he wants to change, maybe change the direction of your life, however, that's what repentance does. I don't know about you, I need to regularly and consciously turn from and repent from the things that I think, especially relying on my own abilities and my own effort to live the kind of life that God wants me to live and rely more on his mercy and his grace. Is anybody with me in this? Anybody, is anybody in the same boat as I'm in? This week has just really taught me being immersed in this is I need to be repentant on a regular basis. Not beating myself up. That's not what repentance is. It's saying, I'm going to change my mind how I think about this. And God, I need you to help me to do that. How I view you, how I view, how I view myself, how I view my sin, all of it. It's a continual way of repenting. Now, John goes on to give us the, give the Pharisees and us, really, and the Sadducees a graphic. He gives them this graphic metaphor or a picture of the judgment that's going to happen for those that refuse to repent in verse 10, okay? He says, cutting at the, he says that he's talking about cutting at the root here. And what it means by cutting at the root, what he means is this is a final removal. This isn't just pruning the bush. This is a final remover, getting, getting rid of it. And fire in the Old Testament really is a metaphor for judgment. Once again, what he's doing here is he is reiterating that their pedigree or even their misguided outward actions and how they appear and how they look and what they do, all that of righteousness will not save them from God's wrath. It just won't. Whack. God is going to come in because he's just and he's holy. You guys, and I put this, I, put, I wanted to decide to put this on a slide. The biggest lie of the enemy 
is that there is no need to repent. By far. The biggest lie that the, that the enemy has to the world out there and to us, that there is absolutely no need to repent. I got this. Even us as believers, I got this. I'm doing my quiet time, going to church. Heck, I even joined the women's Bible study. I mean, things are, this should be okay. No. That's what he's saying here. Graphic, graphic stuff. It's the biggest lie, yet repentance actually, you guys, it leads to joy. It leads to relief. It allows us to come out from hiding and it allows us to be ourselves with God, to just be who we are with him. A God who longs to be in a real, in a transparent relationship with us and a relationship where we are, our hurts are healed, our brokenness is healed. That can only happen as we learn to repent and turn and change the way we view ourselves, the way we view our sin and the way we view God. Don't we all, isn't that the kind of relationship we want with everybody, the people that we love the most especially? We want that kind of relationship, I can just be myself. And not only can I be myself, this is a relationship that's gonna heal me. This is a relationship that's gonna sustain me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to breathe life into me. That's what he's talking about here. Now, verses 11 and 12, we're going to look at this right now. John continues to speak of the consequences of not repenting. He's not going to let it go. Yet, he begins by explaining this, though, by, by the power that is found in what happens when a person does repent and when the Holy Spirit actually indwells their life. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What John is saying here is that his baptism, listen, my baptism, this was just only a preliminary sign or this was just a symbol, okay? It's gonna take someone, like he says, mightier than me, someone, and he says, someone that I'm not even worthy of being their slave. That's how he viewed himself. I wasn't even worthy to be with Jesus' slave. It's gonna take someone like him to be, help you to be able to experience the kingdom of heaven. You see, John could only baptize with water, okay? It was a symbolic gesture. It was a, remember, it was a gesture for people to repent and to change their minds. But to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire, you guys are waiting for my opinion on baptizing the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Baptize of the Holy Spirit and fire means that when a person gives their life completely over to follow Jesus, he imparts or baptizes that person with the Holy Spirit who works as a cleansing fire. Remember, fire was a common Old Testament metaphor for judgment. So what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a new believer who is truly repentant, is he, the Holy Spirit comes in and purifies and removes all the pollutants that had kept that person in chains and in the dark. 
That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is. And the Holy Spirit continues to refine our hearts and minds as we submit to his leading with repentance. Can't help but saying, refine. Those of you who've been in church for a long time, refiners fire my heart. You know, I say that all the time in my youth group. And that really is a great picture of what the Holy Spirit is. It's a refining fire that burns away when we initially become saved, burns away what kept us in the dark. And now as believers, he continues to burn away the things that keep us, the selfishness, the pride, the things that keep us from experiencing God's, king, God's kingdom. A good question for all of us is this. Am I willing to trust God enough to ask him to burn away anything in my life that may be preventing me from being who he wants me to be and doing what he wants me to do? This is, I would encourage you to pray this type of prayer often. Often. God, am I, am I, am I willing to trust? Am I, God, will I, I want to trust you. But asking him, asking yourselves, am I willing, are you willing to trust him enough? Because last time I checked, burning isn't comfortable. Doesn't feel good. But when you talk about what the burning, the, when you, the purification process of what fire does, it's a beautiful thing. And that's what we need to be willing to do in our lives. John now uses another metaphor in verse 12 to illustrate the significance of repentance. He uses this picture of a farmer, okay? Picture of a farmer separating the wheat from the chaff and he used, using this winnowing fork. Got a picture of it. You've probably seen this kind of thing before where they're, this is how they used to separate the wheat uh, from the chaff. When they would harvest, they would bring in the stalks of wheat and bring them into the place called, that they would call the threshing floor. And there they would use this winnowing fork to throw it up in the air so that the wheat which was heavier, would fall down and it would blow the chaff, all this extra stuff in the breeze in the Mediterranean. They would do that. They'd be up on a hill just going like this and the chaff would just blow away. It would get rid, they'd get rid of it. And they'd shovel up all the wheat. They'd have it for it. But they would take the chaff and they would burn it because it was, there was nothing they could use it for. Nothing. There's nothing good for, for chaff. So the heavier kernels, they're able to keep. This picture or metaphor, once again, is symbolizing Jesus' purifying work. Let's see, separating the good, the pure, from the unnecessary, from the, from the bad. What, he's, what is, is a picture of is returning to holiness through repentance. That's what this picture is. So next time you see this winnowing picture, that's what, it's a picture of God doing this, uh, this separation that comes through repentance. He's using it as a metaphor to judge with fire and judgment to emphasize God's, once again, God's wrath on all evil that he will pour out on all evil. They're very separate. This is meant to persuade people. Remember, it's not meant to scare them and freak them out and go, okay, I'll do it because I don't want to go to hell. No, or I don't want to get whatever the wrath is going to look like. I don't want to experience that, whatever. I'm not going to, no, because I don't even know what wrath, I looked, I had a whole section talk about what, what, the, what wrath would actually look like. I don't know. I don't even know what hell looks like. I have no idea. But there's things that describe it, and the thing, the biggest thing that I see in God's wrath is a total separation from him and his goodness. That's hell. 
That is hell. Will there be literal flames? I don't know. Will there be? I don't know. But I know there's going to be a separation from all that's good and all that's right and all the goodness that God is keeping together in our world. We think our world is so bad, it could be a lot worse, my friends. God decided, hmm. That's what God's wrath is, but he's, he's holding off. <laughs> you see how God loves us? I'm careless for this world. He's holding off. Although people are experiencing his wrath in many different ways, being addicted to all the selfness, selfishness and the pride and the arrogance and all the evil that comes into our world. That's, that's God's wrath also. So what's this meant to persuade people? So in our last section, we're just gonna just really hit this real quick. We're just about done here. Last section, verses 13 through 17. What he's gonna give us here really is the results. These are the results, the results of repentance, okay? In this last section, it says this, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descended like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice of heavens from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So we see here that John is shocked. Jesus comes up and he's like, all right, I'm here to be baptized. Could you just imagine John? Whoa, 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 what? I'm gonna baptize you? Are you kidding me? Remember, he just got done telling us, he just got done saying that he's not willing to, he's not able to even be Jesus' slave. And now Jesus wants him to baptize him. This seems really odd. But the answer is found in that statement, let it be so now. For thus it is filling for us to fulfill all righteousness. Once again, this is an entire sermon here, but I'm gonna give you in two little, couple lines. What this means in short is that his baptism, in his, in his baptism, Jesus identifies himself with our need for his righteousness. It's a righteousness that we could only have by him being a substitute for our sins. He's identifying with mankind here. And what we see is when he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and heavens, I couldn't imagine what this was like. Heaven opened up, whatever that looked like, and this voice came down and, and from the Father and proclaimed his affirmation and his absolute delight for his son. Oh, that's amazing. You see, when we repent of, when we make a change to our misguided views of God and of our sin and of ourselves, what happens is we gain a deeper understanding and experience of the kingdom of heaven. It means that we now see ourselves as God sees us because we've been identified, Christ identified himself with us. The beautiful truth is that our very identity is now based on the fact that God delights in us because of our identification with Jesus. Did you know that God delights? 
gross family. God absolutely delights in you. He does. Morris family, God delights in you. I mean, I have a hard time with that. I don't know about you. I know me. I know me. But God delights in me because Jesus identified himself with me. Oh my gosh. So undeserved, but so, so amazing. Really, what the story of Jesus' coming to be baptized is, what it really is, you guys, it's a picture of God initiating a relationship with mankind. That's what it is. That's what this whole story is. It's God's initiating of the relationship with us. And we only really experience this relationship to the fullest as we better understand the joy of repentance. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for your word that is so powerful, so amazing. God, the fact that you would send your son to identify with us so that we would now be seen as righteous and that you delight in us. God, may we be people that run to repent, run to have our mind chained, to change our mind about how we view our sin, how we view ourselves and you, God. Help us to do that. We can't do it on our own. We can't. We can't pray unless you show us how to pray. We can't repent unless you show us how to repent. So I pray that for all of us, that you would show us how to repent so that we could experience fully the kingdom of heaven. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen.